1: In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, our weekly highlights podcast serving up an irresistible spread of stories from across our coverage. I'm Lane Green, language columnist at The Economist, and on our table this week, Pussy Riot on rebellion in the 21st century, the world champions of Scrabble in Nigeria, and the man who taught Britain to make and eat pasta. But first... The War the World Ignores was our cover line this week. The ancient Romans referred to Yemen as Arabia Felix, fortunate Arabia. But the country is now suffering the world's worst humanitarian crisis. Our cover leader explained why and how the war in Yemen must
2: be brought to an end. The UN reckons three-quarters of Yemen's 28 million people need some kind of humanitarian aid. Mounting rubbish, failing sewerage, and wrecked water supplies have led to the worst cholera outbreak in recent history. The country is on the brink of famine. Each day, the Al Thawra Hospital in Hodeida must decide which of the life-saving equipment to run
1: with what little fuel it has. Yet these horrors get hardly any international attention. We argued that this is dangerous. The world can ill afford another
2: failed state, a new Afghanistan or Somalia, that becomes a breeding ground for global terrorism. Yemen, moreover, dominates the Bab al-Mandab Strait, a choke point for ships using the Suez Canal. Like it or not, the West is involved. The Saudi-led coalition is fighting with Western warplanes and
1: munitions. Western satellites guide its bombs. This little-understood war has its roots in the Arab Spring, which toppled Yemen's long-time dictator. But when rebels from the Shia Houthi minority rejected a new constitution and then ousted the country's new president, the conflict escalated. Saudi Arabia gathered a coalition of
2: Arab states and local militias, among them Islamists, Salafists and Southern Separatists, and forced the Houthis to retreat part way. For the past year, the battle lines have barely moved, The Houthis are too weak to rule over Yemen, but too powerful for Saudi Arabia to defeat. They're not just fighting over how to run Yemen anymore. Yemenis have become the pawns in the regional power struggle between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Alarmed by Iran's spreading influence, the Saudis have begun to speak of the Houthis rather as Israelis refer to the Lebanese militia Hezbollah, a dangerous Iranian-proxy army on their border. And the West now also has high stakes in the war. President Donald Trump has given Saudi Arabia carte blanche to act recklessly. He is damaging America's interests. Precisely because of the importance of Saudi Arabia, the world's biggest oil exporter and home to Islam's two holiest places, the West should urge restraint on the impetuous prince and
1: help disentangle him from an unwinnable war. To find out how this unwinnable war can and should be brought to an end, read our briefing on Yemen in the latest issue of The Economist, or find it online at economist.com. Now, our guest last week on The Economist Asks, our weekly chat show, knows a thing or two about rebellion. Nadia Tolokonikova is a founding member of the feminist punk protest group Pussy Riot. <laughs> That was Pussy Riot singing Punk Prayer, Virgin Mary, Get Rid of Putin. Nadia served two years in prison for performing that song in a Moscow church. She told Economist Radio why she continues to fight for democracy, prisoners' rights, and a free press, not only in her native Russia, but around the world.
0: The fact that Donald Trump won presidential elections in the United States, it definitely encourages authoritarian politicians all around the world, because he's uh, Donald Trump is known for praising strong hand and strong leader, and he's encouraging those people who are um, against. Uh, who are standing against feminism, who are misogynist, who are um, trying to to use witch-hunting as the main instrument of their politics. And for Trump, it's Muslims and uh, Mexicans. And uh, for Putin, it's people like us, it's protesters.
1: And you can hear the rest of that interview by subscribing to The Economist Asks on Apple Podcasts or on your podcast app of choice. Do you listen to Pussy Riot or do you prefer Prokofiev? Our science podcast, Babbage, was more interested in how you're listening. Ludwig Ziegler, our technology editor, talked to our host, Jason Palmer, about the evolution of the speaker.
3: Music was kind of confined to your living room, and with smartphones, it became portable. I mean, much more portable than it was with uh, with Walkmans, and that created demand for speakers, and it also created demand for wireless ones. You know, it's it's rapidly moving to to more than that, right? Because now we have an entire a growing crop of, of smart speakers as well. Yeah, and that that's the second big, big change. So it's smart speakers. You may have heard about the Amazon Echo and, and Alexa, the, the kind of the, the service that lives in, in, in the Amazon Echo. So you can she lives t- in there. <laughs> uh, uh, you can talk to it. You can tell her to turn off the light or, or to play music or to, to tell a joke. So the
1: speaker is now listening, too, as long as you speak clearly. Babbage is available every Tuesday. In China, big Western firms have found that, however clearly they enunciate, some things get lost in translation. So even the most famous have been tweaking their trademarks, as our business correspondent Rachna Bogue told Money Talks, our finance podcast. The result is names that actually have a meaning in China and that can resonate with the public imagination. So early examples include Coca-Cola, which is Coca-Cola, which means tasty fun or delicious happiness. BMW is Bauma treasure horse, for example. And the branding consultancy that I've been speaking to has also helped companies like Booking.com and Airbnb and LinkedIn with their names. And again, they're not straightforward translations or transliterations. Booking.com, I think the Chinese name means something like welcome with love. That sounds much more inviting. Money Talks comes out every Wednesday. And what's in the odd altered letter anyway? Well, for the stars of our next story, the stakes are about as high as they come. Listeners, meet Nigeria's Scrabble World Champions.
0: In the hot golden light of an Abuja afternoon, two men spin a rotating Scrabble board, oblivious to the flies buzzing around them.
1: These men know what they're doing.
0: But the scores soon stack up, including two 50-point bonuses for getting rid of all seven letters for mediant, the third note of a diatonic musical scale, and Deracine from Deressine, a French noun and adjective for someone who has been uprooted. In less than 20 minutes, the time allowed for a professional game, Etakaro beats Ben Quickpen by 461 points to 410.
1: Nigeria has made Scrabble something of a national speciality.
0: Both men are members of the triumphant Nigerian team, that last month won the World English Language Scrabble Players Association Championship for the second time running. Four of the team's eight players made the top ten out of 118 competitors.
1: And points, as we know, mean prizes.
0: It helps that some states hire Scrabble players as civil servants. Mr Quickpen gets 70,000 naira, that's $195, a month, from Bayelsa State for coaching younger players. God's Will Akpabio, a former governor and now senator for the southern state of Akwa Ibom, puts on a yearly tournament. This year, the first prize was worth $10,000, Not for nothing is he known as the Pillar of Scrabble in Africa.
1: After the regimented language of Scrabble, the internet may seem like a lawless linguistic outback. But trust me, I'm a language columnist, and it isn't.
3: OMG, the kids and the internet are ruining the English language. Am I right? The sentiment is so common that it hardly bears a reply, except maybe, meh. There is certainly plenty of terrible writing on the Internet, plagued by indifferent spelling, punctuation and grammar, and a lack of any attention to clarity. This grumbling is nothing new. Older generations have been complaining about the state of young people's writing since a teacher of Sumerian complained about his charges 4,000 years ago. A junior scribe does not pay attention to the scribal art. But language really is changing at a dizzying rate today, thanks to the speed with which innovations spread online. So BuzzFeed's copy chief, Emmy Favilla, has written a style book for the Internet age. It's called A World Without Whom. Ms Favilla's opening paragraph will make traditionalists cringe. A world without whom is the place I'd like to spend my golden years Basking in the sun, nary a subjunctive mood in sight, figurative literalis and comma splices frolicking about. The book goes on in this vein, ranking the standard punctuation marks from 13 to 1, BuzzFeed style. The apostrophe, just kinda basic, is in last place and the exclamation mark at number 1. After all, just because you don't know the rules doesn't mean there aren't any. And Ms. Favilla is there to enforce those rules for Buzzfeed, alongside how to spell, punctuate and capitalise Yass, Cray-Cray and Bernie Bros. Look them up if you must. But the point is that the language of the young is not random or careless. Ms. Favilla knows that readers can abandon Buzzfeed any time they like if the writing is no good. It is just that what they find good will often perplex their elders. And you can read more about the fast-changing language of the net in my column,
1: Johnson, which is published fortnightly in the Books and Arts section. Finally, change can be painful, but this week's obituary remembered a man who helped change British tastes beyond recognition and brought only pleasure.
2: When Antonio Carluccio arrived in Britain in 1975, nervous and tongue-tied, he found Italian food restricted mostly to London's Soho. There, a few trattorie made their own pasta and knew that olive oil was not merely for unblocking ears. Otherwise, and elsewhere, what he called Britalian food held sway.
1: His food transformed a nation known
2: for its terrible cooking. Three decades later, his name was on the dark blue blinds of 130 outlets across the land. His twenty-three books and multiple TV series had made his curly white cap of hair and ample girth synonymous with real Italian food, the sort that made you sigh and cry, fantastic, like him, when you tasted it. In Carluccio's cafes, Britons could not only eat in proper Italian style, but could also buy chilli oil, fennel salami, wild boar sauce, squid ink linguine. A triumph by most standards... But to Carluccio, success meant something else. It meant, after a slow stroll with his dog through bare woods on a misty November morning, uncovering a mushroom from the leaf litter, cutting it off, weighing and savoring it, and placing it with reverence in his basket. The woods were full of untouched treasure, stout bolete, high-capped morels, oyster mushrooms, tiny yellow chanterelles. Mushrooms were more than a food to him. They were a philosophy. Mushrooms also showed that the best things were transitory, seasonal, and had to be eaten as fresh as possible. A dish of fried saps and potatoes was perfection, summing up his slogan, Moff, moff, minimum of fuss, maximum of flavor. Abundant wine to drink was all that needed
1: adding. I think we can all drink to that. That's the end of this week's tasting menu, but if you're still hungry, you can find second helpings of all the articles mentioned and all our other podcasts online. Please do keep sending in your feedback by email to radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio. In London, this is The Economist. Planning for your next trip?